You're listening to CISO Secret Podcast, brought to you by Checkpoint. And now, welcome your host, Grant Asplund. Hey, welcome, 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 everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of CISO Secrets. You know, this is where we get a chance to sit down and talk with amazing security leaders from all over the planet. And let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, today we are in for such an amazing treat. Uh, I mean, the list is so long uh, on the bio that I'm just going to introduce Anne and and, uh, uh, introduce her title and then we'll just push it from the dock there because Uh, This is a very, very seasoned executive in the world of security. So Ann Johnson is with me today. She's the corporate vice president at Microsoft. Uh, She's had multiple senior roles, vice president, enterprise cybersecurity, general manager, enterprise cybersecurity group. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. Uh, multiple board members uh, or boards, I should say, that she's a member of currently, you know, uh, organizations like FSISAC, which uh, anybody that's in this business knows and is familiar with. You go back and you see names like Qualys, RSA. I mean, this is a storied career and she's still uh, making huge contributions. I was reading her posts. She also has a Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, a podcast. So with all of that, Ann, I am so thrilled to have you today. Thank you very much for joining the program. Grant, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here and looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, this is great. So why don't you, I'm going to bounce it back to you and you can just kind of talk a little bit about your career because my goodness, uh, it's quite impressive uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that and how you decided to get into the whole cybersecurity world. So I have been in tech for um, over 30 years and being in tech for over 30 years, um, it, I've done a lot of work in infrastructure. I've done a lot of work um, with networks and with storage and those types of things. And so, you know, as I was thinking about, you know, where I was going to take my career next, I was actually in the storage industry. I worked for a company called Data General and then for EMC. We were carrying this RSA security hardware token. And this was back in uh, 2000. And I was, yeah. I'm, a tech, I'm a technologist at heart, so I became fascinated with the technology. So I went mm. and did all this research about RSA security and this hardware token and understanding how it worked. And then I just applied for a job. You know, I said, mm. look, I, I understand this stuff. I want to come work for you. So um, ironically, they hired me as a PKI specialist. I, I didn't even know what PKI was, by the way. <laughs> um, and I don't think in the year 2022, I would be hired by the, you know, we've changed, we've changed. And we should yes. talk about that, by the way. We should talk about recruiting and bringing people new into the industry because I had an opportunity that I'm not sure we give others today, but well, carry this. So I, yeah. You're spot on on that one, and I couldn't agree with you more. I'm I'm living proof that exact same thing. How do I got into tech? I mean, I was in fishing tackle and knives. A guy bought a computer. I happened to fall into it. And then the same thing with security, the same. So so I and I agree. I think we are constantly scouring for 12 years of experience and 
And, and what we need in this industry is fresh eyes, fresh look, uh, fresh ideas, uh, and, and a broader perspective on this thing we've narrowly called cybersecurity for a long time. I interrupted you, so and look, oh, we already gosh. shifted gears, but uh, I think that's, that's a great topic. Well, in podcasts, look, I do one, so we want this to be organic, right? And we just want to yeah. talk. But, you know, to your point, I actually accidentally got into tech. I was headed to law school. I have my undergraduate, is in, I have a degree in dual major in political science and communication and a minor in history. I mean, my path was chosen. Then I decided not to go to law school and I needed a job. So I was in, I was living in the Los Angeles area at the time and I walked into a computer store. They had an ad in the paper. You know, we're talking about a long time ago, yeah. right? Yeah, I they know. Had, yeah, that's so funny. I was just yeah. talking to a guy yesterday about how is when we were growing up, newspapers had so much influence in our country and the world. And yeah. today now there's there's the Daily Mail and 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 the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. You know, but anyway, so you looked in the newspaper. Yeah, and they they were hiring a um, a salesperson for the um, for the retail sto store floor, and I'm like, well. You know, a degree in political science and communication wasn't getting me a lot of other interviews at the time. You know, it wasn't wasn't the most tangible of skills. So I walked in the store and I said, look, I know how to use a computer. I know how to use Lotus 1 through 3 and WordPerfect. You know, Microsoft was just becoming super popular and I had gone yeah. to school in Utah. So we were very much into WordPerfect and Lotus 1, 2, 3 because those companies were in Utah. And I said, I know how to use a computer. I know how to talk to people, right? I, you know, was going to go to law school so I can do this job. So the funniest thing, it was a franchise franchise of a, an Inacomp computer franchise, if you remember Inacomp. Yeah. I remember Inacomp. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's amazing. So the owner looks at me and here I am, this 21 year old kid who had just moved to LA from, you know, Utah. And I grew up in a really small town. So, you know, I looked the part, right? And he yep. said, well, look, he said, I'm not convinced that you should be on the sales floor talking to our, you know, customers, but I'll tell you what. He said, I'm going to put you in the back doing purchasing for the store. So making sure we always have our supplies in stock and you have to negotiate prices and I'll teach you how to do that. If you're successful at that, then I'll let you go, you know, come on the sales floor and talk to customers. So about six months later, he comes back into the procurement part of the store and he says, um, you know what? I want you to go do sales, but you're going to not go do sales on the sales floor. You're going to go do inside sales and make outbound phone calls because we sell to schools and companies out of the store, too. And that's how my career started. I mean, this is the most accidental career ever. What I learned, Grant, is that I love technology. So I just leaned in. I took every, because I worked at this computer store, I took every vendor technical and sales training course I could find, IBM, Apple, Microsoft. I mean, I just worked really hard to learn everything I could learn to get certifications, to make sure that I was valuable. And then I just built my career from there. I I love it and I I love it and if I can you know what I really like is there's such a similarity that you and I share I can tell you because I was selling fishing tackle and knives for a guy at 19. At 22, I'm still with him. We're doing less than $750,000 a year, three company cars, seven employees. I mean, we're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Everything's manual. And he goes to buy an Apple II Plus to manage our inventory, 35,000 SKUs. Two months later, he goes, we should be selling these, not fishing tackle. And there was only one other dealer in the county 
start computing. And so we've managed to, uh, this was down in Tacoma, uh, uh, managed to, uh, it, we found out that his wife's cousin's sister's brother's wife, whatever, managed to get us an application from Apple for a dealership. And so we put one in and one year later, June, 1983, I couldn't spell computer, but I was on the floor selling them. Uh, and, and you know, it's so funny, Ann, because I've said for a long, long time, I feel life is so much like falling down a mountain. You, you know, you really don't control much of it. You try to do it as gracefully as you can, avoid hurting people and avoid getting hurt. And as much as you can stay on your feet, you know, but, stuff just happens uh and, and certainly that's how it was with me when i went to work for apple and then i mean when i got into the security industry and you know you talk about giving chances so i was in alaska and i was general managing two computer land stores and a kid calls me from he calls me from atlanta and he's at the computer land headquarters and he wants to go to Alaska, so he wants a job. <laughs> I don't know this kid from Adam, and I'm saying, Steve, I appreciate your tenacity, but I can't just say, yeah, you got a job. Well, he was just really persistent, and so finally I said, you know, listen, if I see you on my doorstep, if you get here, I'll hire you. Well, he got here, he, he got there, um, we hired him. Well, Steve Morosky's went on. I think he's a vice president or senior vice president at, at Oracle or Salesforce or somewhere. He's done quite well. But this is exactly what you are talking about, right? Giving people an opportunity when they have the passion and the desire, tap into it and let them let them go, right? Yeah, we and we have to do more of that. And I'll just I'll digress for a second. Talk about my husband, right? He's another person that um, came into this computer industry out of um, insurance. He was uh, he's a bit older than I am, but he was selling high risk insurance in Chicago in really um, disadvantaged neighborhoods. And he talks about and and they were that business. He said it was just so shady mm. and and it was cash payments. And he said half the time he's running back to his car for his life because everyone knew he was there to collect the cash payments and he knew he had to get out. So he went and he worked at a Tandy Radio Shack. Remember Tandy Computer Centers? Oh, yeah, you, you're, old, you you're as get, old as I am, right? So he yes, the, absolutely. Tandy. And he, were to, and he stayed in tech for 30 years. He retired a few years ago. I think that those opportunities are things we don't actually give people today because the computer industry has matured enough. But in cybersecurity, we have such a talent shortage that we actually mm. do need to give people opportunities. For example, Microsoft, we recruit a lot out of um, transitioning U.S. military members. We find they yeah. make fantastic cybersecurity professionals because they know how to work on a team. They know how to work under stress. They know how to do investigations. We just have Discipline. to teach them technology. They're right. disciplined. They're, yes, we're, just, yes. we're just skilling them. And it gives yeah. us also this incredibly diverse population. But that's how we have to think about it. Microsoft also invested, you probably saw, in a community college or junior college program in the U.S. and globally to try to get the kids that are going to, and I went to junior college for two years before I transferred, the kids that are going mm -hmm. to junior college or community college um, are also often coming from disadvantaged backgrounds and giving those yeah. 
you know, the art of the possible. You know, if you ask 17 year old me when I was leaving my tiny little town to go to junior college that I was going to be a corporate vice president of Microsoft, at, you know, at later in my career, I would have laughed. Right. I would. I didn't even know what that meant to begin with. Yeah. I was like, what's Microsoft yeah. and what's a corporate vice president? We need yeah. to give the younger generation, folks that are disadvantaged, the, that vision of what their life could be like. And we need to give them the skills and the training and bring them in and embrace them. I, boy, you know, it's too bad you don't have two hours, 45 minutes instead of just 45 minutes. And because I know we could go on and on and on because, you know, I'm such a big believer in in belief. You know, I carry around with me a, a fortune cookie. I found uh, four words. And I think that together that some of the most powerful I've ever read, deep faith eliminates fear. And if you look up each word individually, you know, we know what deep means. Uh, faith, I thought was interesting. Nothing to do with religion or God. It's belief, right? Uh, but we immediately when we hear faith, we have that tendency to kind of lean that direction, right? Eliminates, we know what that means, right? It's gone. Fear, what I found so fascinating when I looked up the word fear in the dictionary, real or imagined. That was powerful, right? So haters are going to hate, but we have to remember that our own belief is equally as important, right? I mean, the one person you're going to talk to more than anyone else in the world for your in your life is yourself, right? And you believe you. We have to, uh, I think, work on instilling that uh, hope, belief, and and giving more people a chance for sure. Uh, we do. And I love the way you put it. It's it's the belief. It's it's giving people that belief yes. that they can that they can have whatever life they want and then giving them that opportunity and giving them yep. mentoring and coaching and training yep. that they need to get there and sponsoring I, them. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, honestly, I I can't believe how fortunate I am that I fell into this industry. I pinch myself every day still that I've been in this, you know, security specific since 98. I mean, that's a long time, right? Checkpoint had 400 employees the first time I went to work for them. When I was with a company here again, they gave me a chance. You know, it was the, it was the first uh, company in the world that ported bind to windows. Right. So, so, I mean, if you stand up in front of an audience today Anne, and you say, hey, how many of you know what bind is? You'll see one or two hands go up. And I think it's amazing because if you say, hey, how many of you know what DNS is? Oh, everybody knows what DNS is. Right. And it's this notion that they don't really realize there was something before DNS. Right. That was open source and available. Um, but you'll remember in the early days when you buy a TCP IP stack, uh, you know, it, depending on the network you had, if you didn't have DNS for that network, you couldn't get on a TCP IP network, you couldn't resolve, right? And, and Windows Network didn't have any DNS. So this yep. small company in Seattle ported Bind to Windows in 1995. Well, in, in 1998, 
Checkpoint acquired us. We had 35 employees. And I think this, you know, will relate to security and I'll, I'll explain how. You know, I think it's a testament. Gil Schwed, the longest running CEO uh, in the NASDAQ, just uh, eclipsed that, which is quite an accomplishment. But when we were acquired, MetaInfo, this small little company, I believe the vision was this. This was before Active Directory. Right. This was was literally when dynamic DNS had only been out for a short time. We had DHCP and we no longer had to manually assign addresses. And Gil and Shlomo and Marius, you know, they had this vision of, gosh, if we could tie in that username at and at Mike, you know, and at Microsoft is the host name uh, and, and and be able to understand that that's 1.2.3.4 that was dynamically issued, then in the policy editor, I could have a policy that says source and at destination grant at, instead of the struggle with IP addresses that we went for 20 years. But the amazing thing is nobody really cared. Uh, uh, because this was at a time when everybody's fishbowl disappeared and they realized they were in the ocean with every other predator and prey, and they just wanted to duplicate that, and firewall was all anybody cared about. But it was really interesting, especially now, as you as you uh, realize how much we're constantly talking about zero trust, right? And this notion of, I need to absolutely know it's you and. Well, that was the vision Gil had you know, nearly 30 years ago, but nobody else cared. The industry doesn't always follow what you, but because it, it required a bigger investment, obviously, right? From from Checkpoint to buy into the whole uh, architecture. But it was really, I thought a brilliant strategy um, to overcome what we wrestled with for many, many years, right? Uh, which now has gone away altogether or almost as we move into the cloud. IP address is not really nearly as important in the in the security world as it used to be, right? Well, I, I in a way, actors still find ways to spoof them so they can, you know, abuse um, resources. But um, the, the cloud has changed everything, right? And the cloud has made zero trust possible, by the way, because you can actually access anything for any time from anywhere, right? Well, right. being able to do that, then you need security. You need to have that, you know, that device you're accessing from, your location, et cetera, have to be interrogated. And that's incredibly important. Um, yeah. So I think that the cloud has given us this breadth of security opportunity, as well as digitally transforming our customers and giving them business opportunity that we never had in the days when we were worried about TCP, IP, and um, DNS resolution and those type of things. You know, we've just changed the paradigm a lot, though it's always DNS. Whenever there's yep. an outage, my first, you know, whenever there's an outage, a lot of people go to security. I go to DNS first. I'm like, it was probably a DNS issue. And if you proved to me it wasn't, then we could talk about what it might have been. It, it's funny you say that because I hear that all the time. It's always DNS. I, I, I decided long ago that I could be retired if I figured out the standard and protocol to replace DNS. And it was, it had, you know, and it worked better, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the thing that's remarkable, I, I think, about DNS. I mean, if you look at the book and bind that Cricket wrote, right, Cricket Lou, I mean, that thing is 650, I mean, it's it's enormous. And I've, I'm amazed still on 
how unbelievably sophisticated and complex DNS is and how many people still manage to configure it wrong and it still seems to work. You know, I mean, it's pretty amazing, but you're right. It's always the culprit, right? If something's not working, blame it on DNS. Yeah, it's the first place to go. It's interesting, you know, as you talk about cloud and you you mention how it's enabled zero trust, I think that's really a fascinating comment because I think you're exactly right. Having the granularity and capability to go from me and this device wherever I am on the planet to navigate to a particular data set or application that capability requires security, but it also enables that level of granularity, right? With that identity that it's just me. It's not like you're just opening up a lemonade stand and say, you know, come on, anybody come in. It's just for me with very fine grain policy. Not everybody's implementing it that way, but certainly that seems to be where we need to go, right? Well, you know, the principles of zero trust are really straightforward. You start with the use strong authentication or multi-factor authentication for every every person 100% of the time that are accessing your environment. You interrogate every transaction in the session so that you're looking yep. for anomalous behavior, no matter where that transaction comes from, and you're using least privilege. We still find most organizations have way too much privilege, which allows lateral movement and elevation of privilege and allows a small event to become a large event in milliseconds or in seconds, yep. right? So yep. that least privilege concept is one of the most important. Yeah, I. so I'm curious, I wanna pull on a thread that I, you know, in my feeble mind, my Gilligan view of the world, um, I think this is gonna be a huge knot that uh, people are gonna have to untie. And it's around identity and specifically how identity has evolved. And now everything has an identity, microservice, Correct. function, everything and, and i mean my application might have hundreds of identities and to your point we need to enforce have the capability to make sure a developer doesn't copy and paste an object a function something that has privileges associated with an identity that can get assumed that you don't want to enable it to be assumed right i mean that seems like that's the, I mean, we went through the posture management era, phase one. We're realizing now we need context for better posture management. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on the whole challenge we're going to have with identity going forward, um, because I think that's going to be a, a big area of exploit. It is, and we, we talk about it just the way you talked about it, right? You can't think of identity as being just the human anymore. You need to think about identity being the, the human, the device, the data, the application, the microservice. If it's IoT, everything has a unique identity, um, and everything should be healthy. Everything should be behaving in an expected manner. Um, even applications, IoT devices, they are purpose-built to do a specific function. If they are doing making calls that are outside that specific function, that's anomalous behavior. So there's this breadth of opportunity we have to use machine learning. We, we see like 23 trillion signals a day or something um, wow. globally, by the way, yeah, with our, with our footprint. 
there's this breadth of opportunity we have to take all of that intelligence in, to put it to a machine learning engine, to very quickly understand what's anomalous behavior and to block very quickly at a global scale. Again, the power of the cloud. We never could have done that prior to the cloud. But Absolutely. You know, I often tell customers, if we see an event in Singapore, we block it before it ever gets to Brazil because you yeah. know we know what's happening, a bad Mac address, a bad IP address, malware that, you know, even malware that's unknown to us initially because it's behaving in an anomalous way. It's not behaving in the expected manner of the device or the application. Yeah, the scale, the scale the cloud enables is really unprecedented, right? In so many aspects of this world we call compute. I mean, I've said now for uh, at least a year or two, I think we're reaching a kind of a perfect storm with, with bandwidth, connectivity, and compute, right? Those three storage we got to a long time ago. I mean, it's so commoditized now, you know, cost me a penny for gigabytes, uh, you know, uh, so, so that's not, but I think it's interesting when you combine all of those together, the game's really changing, isn't it? I mean, I can, uh, if I need to look at a 10 petabyte data set, cloud enables that. Right. If I if I want to yeah. do something locally with the temperature in a room, I could do that with my handheld supercomputer. Right. And the, and and the way we're shifting where applications function and where data resides. I mean, I believe we're getting to the point where it's going to be invisible to you. You're not going to know because it's not going to matter. I think it kind of already is, right? We don't talk about nearline or offline or cold storage nearly as much as we used to remember from an old storage yeah. hack. Um, we do talk though about data nationalization and data sovereignty. So there are particular regions of the world where where the data is stored and where it transits is incredibly important for regulatory reasons and also yeah. for privacy reasons. But to your point, I was explaining, so I have a daughter who's 21, right? She's virtually a digital yeah. native. She is, a, she is a digital native. And I was explaining to her that in my first job, when I first went to work, Laptop computers didn't exist. Personal computers were relatively still fairly new. And the first mobile phone I had was permanently attached to my car. It did nothing but be a phone and you never turned it on. You wore a pager, right? I wore, you know, I wore a pager and the phone was so expensive that someone would page me and I'd have to make a decision. Do I want to use this mobile phone to call math? Do I want to find a pay phone? We remember we used to have pay phones. Do I have any change? And do I want to call a pay phone? Or can it wait till I get back to the office? Um, because remember, at some point I became a field salesperson. I graduated from the inside salesperson, field salesperson. So I was in my car. My car was my office, right? But I always had to make decisions about that phone. I certainly didn't have the internet. I didn't have any of the electronic capabilities we have now that enable business to move so quickly. And it's enabled this growth of business that's absolutely tremendous and needed for society as society advances. Mm -hmm and grows. We just have to be cognizant of the potential risks, right? And the potential risks um, are things like, you know, um, ethic ethical AI, right? That's a potential yeah. risk that we always have to be aware of. Quantum computing is something we need to, to be aware of how that's going to impact society. 5G is something we need to be aware of how that's going to impact society. There's a lot there that we just have to be cognizant of, aware of, because as wonderful as all this technology is, there's risks that are inherent to it. Yeah. Yeah. Deep fake is another one that's quite remarkable, right? I mean, Absolutely. we're seeing it now. Now it's actually regular old folk. You know, there's a girl in Canada who's uh, was being depicted for 
uh, the sale of of uh, prostitution. And she discovered it, and you know, yeah, it looks like me and sounds like me, but that's not me. Uh, it, it's pretty remarkable, uh, and that um, you know we were talking earlier, Anne, about the recent acquisition Microsoft made, pretty significant in one of those areas that we have to be cognizant of, right? And that's this whole disinformation and nation states propagating information that that really is just a flat out a lie, right? Yeah, and I think that, you know, we, we see this intersection. I did some work on it last summer, and then we recently acquired a company that does a lot of work on disinformation and research. But there's this intersection between disinformation and cyber threats and nation state actors and cyber criminals that's real, right? Often it's the same actors, it's the same motives. It's just another vehicle for them to um, embark upon their mission and their nefarious intent. And we have to not, we have to recognize, and that will obviously go into deepfakes. There are some really good deepfakes out there now. And can oh. you imagine the scenario of, you know, someone pretending to be Saudi and Adela and calling, you know, Microsoft and, and you know, asking someone in the company to do something. That's yeah. why organizations have to have a lot of controls. Even I had a little startup right before Microsoft, and we even got the email that was sent to my CFO spoofed by email address and asking him to move money to a bank account. And fortunately, he was in the office next to me and said, hey, did you want me to do this? And I'm like, absolutely not. That wasn't from me, but it, you know, you it was completely spoofed. It looked yep. exactly like it came from me. And those are the types of things that smaller businesses, you know, I was security aware, right? But can you? And he was savvy. But can you imagine that your average small business when something like that's happened? There's tremendous losses. And yep. as an industry, we have to make things simpler. For um, I think one of our greatest opportunities, Grant, is for small and mid-sized business to make things mm -hmm. simpler for people to use, to make things simpler for people to understand and implement. Yeah, I totally agree. And Anne, I think this is another uh, great testament to the power and capability of the cloud. Because, you know, I often speak and I ask my audience, how many of you have a wheel in a river behind your house powering everything in your home? No one, right? You just, you plug in and you go. And that's really the world that uh, we live in. But um, it's interesting, we must be close uh, uh, because my youngest is 21. He too is a digital native. He's gonna be a graduate of Belmont University, hopefully here in three more classes. So excited about that. Yeah, yeah. thank you. That's Boy, you have no idea, looking forward to that getting over with. <laughs> the last well, yeah. one. Um, uh, yeah, mine, mine is still on the payroll too, but that's all right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> she's got a little yeah. longer. She's got a little longer to go, but I want to make sure she's got that right start in life. So I'm good. Absolutely. With that. And this is what, you know, I guess to kind of bring it full circle. And I know we're getting near the end of our time, but, um, you know, we're fortunate. I know I certainly am very, very fortunate to be able to provide for my son, but you know, I was a food stamps free lunches kid growing up with four brothers in South Tacoma. And had I not uh, been given a break, had I not had someone uh, uh, willing to take me under their wing and spend a little more time with me, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today. And so I really believe very strongly, this is an obligation we have. Uh, we, I say, looking at you and others that are like us, you know, we have to pull more people in and, and do all we can to help them because we need help. Uh, and none of us, 
you know, no great accomplishment is ever accomplished by an individual. There's always people around them. You know, you may credit great people in history, but the fact is they're surrounded by great people. And so uh, you are. You have to be. It's a, it takes a village, right? For every part. Totally. Like I grew up. I grew up in a similar way that you did. So it, it takes a village for those of us, for anyone, yeah. right? Even yeah. people that yeah. grew up with all the advantages, they have their village. I mean, you, you just, no, no person gets through life totally on their own. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this has been absolutely, I think, one of my, if not my favorite podcast interviews ever. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And like I said, I know we could keep going for hours. I'd love to have you back again. Uh, I really, really have enjoyed it. So thank you very, very much for spending so much time with us. Thank you so much, Grant. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we can uh, at some point in time uh, host you on Afternoon Cyber Tea. So yeah, that, oh, that'd be awesome. I'd love it. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. You bet. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, another amazing episode of CISO Secrets with Ann Johnson, corporate vice president for the last now seven almost years uh, at Microsoft with many, many years more in the industry. A fantastic discussion. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, share it, tell your friends, subscribe, and we'll look forward to having you back on the next episode of CISO Secrets. Take care. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share with your friends and colleagues.